Consider, if you will, a chair. Take a look at a chair that's near you, any chair at all. It can be any kind. What I'd like you to do is think about this chair and uh, describe it. Pretend, you know, that you're in the fourth grade and you're doing one of these exercises where you describe what you're looking at as if to someone who has never seen such a thing before. Some sort of alien has shown up, has no idea what this uh, object chair is that you're talking about, so you describe it. The trick is describe it without using the word chair, without using a synonym for chair, just what you are looking at. Pretend like you're drawing a model and you're doing it with words. But this, in this case, the model you're drawing is, is a chair. Think about if I gave you a lot of time to do this, the kind of detail that you go into, the way uh, the legs go down and out, how it's standing, um, what it is that you might sit on, on this object, the materials, the color, the feel, the sound that the chair makes, if it's a squeaky chair or a rolling chair, um, its position in the room. Uh, eventually, you might run out of things to say about it and its shape and its parts, and you look at its purpose. It's being used to be, to be sat on. Um, you can use it as a, as a stepping stool. Um, it, uh, how it is made for this purpose of, of taking someone in repose. So it uh, perhaps even craves it, even wants it, that it's, it's fulfilling to it. And now you're into some sort of personification of this chair. Eventually, you might start considering the fact that this chair is not always in this room. You might start thinking about where you got it from. Maybe it was your, your parents' chair, your grandma's chair. Um, where did she get it from? Where did the materials come from? If you're in a school, uh, you might be looking at a, uh, a chair that is replicated over and over and over within a classroom that stacks neatly in the back when things need to be put away, or a chair that folds up and, uh, or has a desk attached to it. You start thinking about where all these things came from, these different elements of it. An office chair uh, might have leather on it, might um, have uh, cushions, um, again, the, the rollers, the adjustable knobs. Think about the sourcing of the materials. Anything wooden in your chair um, probably came from a forest in China. Anything metal in the chair probably was pulled out of the ground in the Congo, probably by a 12 or 14-year-old boy who was pulling metal out of the ground rather than going to school. The uh, oil that makes the plastics, or the synthetic parts of this chair, um, probably came out of the ground in, in Iraq or Saudi Arabia, somewhere in the Middle East, maybe Syria. The cotton, if it has an actual cotton filling, uh, probably comes from Egypt, but um, more than likely not, it's a synthetic filling that, again, came out of the ground uh, as oil. So the different parts of this chair, the, the metal, the plastics, were probably taken to somewhere like Indonesia um, or China, where they were assembled into uh, what we would recognize today, and then they were put into some sort of crates 
and slapped into a boat. And that boat came across the uh, part of the Indian Ocean, the entire length of the Pacific Ocean, probably landed in the port of Los Angeles, just north of Long Beach, was pulled off of a truck in a giant shipping container. Um, I'm sorry, pulled off of the, uh, the boat in a giant shipping t- container, put onto a truck or put into a train bed and taken to wherever it is that you're sitting, more or less, and looking at this chair. Think of the, the hundreds of people who this chair has come into contact with in order to be here today. Think of the, the monumentally small percentage of chance that allows you to be looking at this individual chair this morning. It could have been anything that you're looking at, anything that you're considering, much less any other chair on, on that shipping container. But it's this one chair, and it's this one chair that somebody ordered, somebody stocked, somebody paid for, somebody tracked, somebody piloted the boat, somebody you know, did security on the boat and um, checked off the right boxes, uh, making sure that it was there. Um, somebody put it together before then. Somebody was doing the mining. Somebody was doing the drilling. Somebody was um, constructing the parts for the pump that was going to pull the oil out of the ground. And before that, my God, this oil used to be a dinosaur millions of years ago. That uh, All underground oil, these fossil fuels, used to be a dinosaur. You're sitting, probably, on a dinosaur. And if not a dinosaur, um, you're sitting on parts of a tree that were 50 or 100 years old. Um, or uh, metal, again, that, that some youth had to sell out their childhood for. Really, this could be anything. I mean, if you watch professional wrestling, a chair can be used as a weapon. It can be used as, a, uh, again, a, a stepping stool. It can be used as an ottoman pretty darn easily. A bed. But we agree on this one sort of definition of chair. Through our agreement of what constitutes a chair, it gives this chair a certain role in your life and a certain power in your life. And this may not always be evident with chairs, but certainly that agreement and the power behind that agreement is uh, hyper clear with something like money, something that is entirely fictional and has an entirely um, imaginary quality to it that we've created desirability behind it that makes it almost unquestionably um, needful. But I think it's worth examining the complex messages and realities of the things around us all the time and to remember that this is ever-present in every material around you, every man-made material especially. But even in, in the natural world, there are uh, embedded complex and interesting phenomena that we just breeze by, you know, um, it, it, it's somewhat cliched now to talk about how an entire forest can come from a single acorn, but dude, it's entire forest can come from a single acorn. You get this little tiny thing and you put it in the ground and the materials, uh, that this little tiny thing draws from come mostly from the air 
come from the filtering carbon out of the air and from uh, sunlight, creating their own freaking food from sunlight. And from this uh, can spring not just a tree, but, but hundreds of trees, ultimately. Um, it's, it's a mind-blowing sort of um, functionality to a tree or forest, a pine cone that you walk by every day. And when you get to the way that things are crafted and, and how difficult it is to come in contact with these, um, you know, thousands of people who, who are upstream from your possession of something like a computer or a phone or a um, chair, it can become really overwhelming if you're to take this in all the time. If you're sitting in a, in a room and you consider the carpet and you consider the windows, and you consider the doors, and you consider every tiny object herein. There's enough messaging there, enough hands as part of this, um, that it'd be completely overwhelming. Every time you eat an orange, uh, you know, imagine the tree that it came from, the people who picked it, the rain clouds that are embodied in this orange, the sunlight that's embodied in it. But we're not really aware of this, and this is, for the most part, a very good thing, because what our brains are doing is filtering things out. And I've touched on this idea before, but probably not firmly enough, that your brain is not primarily interested in creating new ways of doing and seeing things. Your brain is primarily interested in filtering out the overwhelming amounts of information that are out there. Your brain is standing as a uh, guard between your senses and you, the way you're going to interact with the world around you. But if creativity is something you prize, if creativity is something that you want to work on and harness, you have to work around this brain. You have to work in a way that makes its filter challenged so that these inputs can reach it, so that you can better understand whatever it is you're dealing with that's going to lead to creativity. And the, the creative life, in, in many ways, is surrendering to the luxury of ignorance. That the creative life is surrendering to all of these um, inputs. And I, I propose to you that it's, it's uh, not, no accident, no coincidence that so many creatives struggle with things like depression. Because those signals and feelings are out there. And those people who do particularly well in this world those people who are particularly served by our economic and power structure are particularly closed off to many of these inputs. Now, not all of them, not 100%, but uh, you have a lot of CEOs who are sociopaths. Very few artistic sociopaths out there, as far as the research says. Very few but tons and tons of people who struggle with um, depression or um, attention disorders or anxiety or rest somewhere um, 
uh, neuroatypical on the spectrum. And that's because creativity uses new ways of approach and new ways of doing things. And that's what we're talking about today. How to teach creativity is something that um, scholars have wrestled with for a really long time. And ultimately, when you find somebody who says they do know how to teach creativity, um, they're, they're wrong about that. There are methods of getting more creative. There are methods of approaching creativity in a uh, new and um, more powerful way. But teaching the act of creation, teaching creativity, is a difficult matter. Otherwise, you would have colleges that pumped out box all the time. You know, modern box, which would be more like a, you know, Shostakovich or a, um, uh, some other contemporary composer. Um, you would have art schools that pump out um, Van Goghs constantly, that, that, that pump out Rembrandts all the time. So creativity is necessarily linked to intelligence. And so that's one thing that I really want to um, address here is that intelligence and your method of thinking are two very separate things. So um, Ed De Bono, who we're going to talk about a lot when we talk about lateral thinking, we're going to talk about his ideas a lot. I won't address him particularly very much. Uh, likens our intelligence as the power of your car, the power of your engine, and your method of thinking as the driver. Now we've seen this play out before in this pot in this uh, lecture series. We've seen uh, this play out with computers where. You have chess playing computers like, like Deep Blue who are well versed in a gigantic amount of knowledge about the game and the history of the game and the strategies of the game. And then you have a, a computer like AlphaZero that only knows the rules and learns how to play more and more effectively. So in this, the computer like Deep Blue is, is, is like being very intelligent. And the computer like AlphaZero is somebody who's a dynamic thinker. It is easier to control your method of thinking than it is your intelligence. There are many different measures of intelligence. The way we measure intelligence is, has never been accurate. Um, we may be able to get some sort of ballpark about um, what may be a typical type of intelligence for a neurotypical person, but we don't really have a way to numerically divide intelligence into some sort of rating scale, uh, despite the fact that this idea, which seems so comforting to us, uh, is so pervasive, this notion of like an IQ test or what have you. History is full of foolish, foolish measures of intelligence. So what we've been trying to talk about in this lecture series is your method of thinking. And what that starts with is metacognition. 
That starts with paying attention to how you're thinking, paying attention to what you're taught and how you're taught, how you process it, what you're thinking about when you process it properly, what um, doing better or doing worse in that subject might mean versus what it's actually accurately assessing. And there not being an entire correlation there. So controlling how you're thinking starts with metacognition, starts with looking at your thinking. And mindfulness is a great step towards looking how you're thinking because you're actually tracking your thoughts, you're becoming aware of your thoughts. And taking a critical look at the ways in which you've been taught is another great way to sort of isolate the methods that you've been taught without knowing that you were taught them. And in this sense, we're mainly talking again about critical thinking. Lateral thinking t takes a step away from critical thinking. And it does this because this idea of, of finding truth by trimming away untruth isn't quite enough for many people's needs. Um, it ignores other possibilities. That innovation and success comes from looking at lots of different ideas and not just centering on one, which critical thinking tends to do. Critical thinking opens us up to this thing called the intelligence trap. The intelligence trap is something that any sort of smart person or great rhetorician, rhetorician, ah, someone who's really good at rhetoric, ah, the irony, uh, can fall into. And the intelligence trap is that through critical thinking, you're able to, to form an argument that defends an idea, that defends a position, that defends a point of view to a fault. That the smarter you are, or the better you are at arguing, that the more likely you are to be able to defend something so properly that you never let another idea come in. And that's the real shortcoming of critical thinking. Critical thinking is absolutely necessary for some things, like information literacy, like verifying the truth of something that you're looking at on the internet, like um, uh, how to find the right answer on a test. All this stuff is, is super important for critical thinking. And critical thought is used to evaluate all sorts of things in highly effective ways. But lateral thinking is a skill that is almost completely ignored by any sort of standardized schooling system. And one reason why it's completely ignored is because it's hard to fill out on a little bubble sheet test. You can't take a multiple choice test on lateral thinking, not very easily. Now let me give you some ideas about what I mean with lateral thinking. Lateral thinking is the ability to skip to different tracks of thought, different trains of thought. Something that does this really well is riddles. Um, you know, if you think of a, of a riddle, that the way that uh, the question is formed um, makes you think about one thing, but really you should be thinking about something else. Um, uh, jokes. Jokes are really good at it too. Jokes make you look in one direction and then they pull the rug out from under you and you were actually thinking along another direction. Let me give you an example. My favorite math joke of all time. Bill Gates walks into a bar and makes everyone a millionaire on average. Now see, that's hilarious because it sounds like there's some sort of like fantasy being fulfilled that he walks in and starts spreading around moolah, but no, that's not what happens. He steps in and if you add in to get everybody's net worth in this bar and divide it by the number of people there, then on average, you have a bar full of millionaires. And it goes to show the um, 
problem with outliers when we're looking at averages, the problem with statistics, and it's just plain funny. It's lateral thinking. You take it in one direction, you switch abruptly to another. So, how can we harness this power? How can we become better lateral thinkers? Well, there's a number of tools that uh, have been introduced by, by researchers into lateral thinking. And lateral thinking, the ability to see many possibilities, many answers to a given problem or given situation is like a uh, forerunner of creativity. From lateral thinking, you can better access creativity. So if you can't teach creativity, you might be able to teach lateral thinking. You might be able to get into the practice of it. Of course, some people are naturally good at this. People who are, um, you know, uh, people who tell jokes are, are good at with, with quips and sayings, good at reframing situations um, and get in practice of this. They get better and better at it. So researchers have come up with some thinking tools. One of them is called the PMI. And the PMI, which stands for plus minus interesting, is sort of like making a, um, a pros and cons list. That if you get to a, an answer to a problem, let's say, and it seems like the obvious answer, like it's so obvious that you don't want to question it, it's a good idea to step back and perform this PMI. You make a list of, of the pluses of this answer, the minuses, and what's interesting. What interesting can come out of it. This third category, instead of just being pros and cons, uh, gives us um, a lot more play. It allows us to indulge in the ideas of, of what um, is not thought of and not on the surface and not obvious that can let you uh, open a door to some new way of thinking. So let's say that, that you're looking at, at a college and you know that this one college is the one to go to and you make this sort of list and, and you might find that there's some interesting aspects of it that um, open the door to some other direction you could go. I don't know, I'm just throwing things out there. Um, I don't know your situation. So another one is called the APC, which is Alternative Possible Choices. And the APC is uh, a, a sort of really deliberate effort to explore alternatives within the uh, given solution of a problem, within the given um, framework of, of what you're trying to do. So, for example, what this really is about is, is not examining an answer to a problem so much as reevaluating a problem, trying to take a look and see what the, the, the issue is here and uh, what alternatives you can have. Now, I have a great example for this one. It's a great sort of industry example is um, Nintendo's Game Boy system. Uh, it's a great example of lateral thinking where the, the problem was that um, uh, kids were uh, feeling like they were stuck with one sort of video game console, um, that you had a limited number of televisions in a house, and people were buying either Nintendo or Sega, and if they had one or the other of them, they weren't buying a second system, or they weren't buying a third system, that there was only so much to go around. And the Game Boy introduced this sort of third option, which was also Nintendo. And another problem with this was that it was extremely expensive, the idea of a handheld game. At the time, you did have some other players out there, and uh, they were getting really expensive. These uh, really fancy, you know, Atari Lynx with the color graphics was nearly $500, for example. 
And what Nintendo did was they took an existing technology that has worse graphics, no color, no backlight. They stripped down a system to be as cheap as possible. And the cheapness of it, the $99 price tag on this system, made it where uh, more kids could get a hold of it. It was much easier to get a hold of. And instead, the innovation went into designing the games, designing the games to be richly playable, exciting, and engaging, and uh, to not rely on the beauty, not rely on the graphics, not rely on uh, getting a stunning interface, but instead to make it, you know, Tetris is a great example. Tetris, which shipped with most original Game Boys, was a puzzle game that didn't rely on characters. It was just an addictive way to play a game in your hands. And of course, all of us know what that's like these days with our smartphones. So that's the APC, Alternative Possible Choices. Examines the problem instead of the answer to try and find a new way to circumnavigate that problem instead of just arriving at an answer for it. The other one is examining perceptions and patterns. If you're trying to intentionally do some lateral thinking, Examining your perceptions and patterns is one way to do it. For example, when we looked at the chair, this is really what we were doing. That uh, our brain wants to build filters around things and that it forms patterns. Now, our, our brain is great at this, that art, reading, music, all of this stuff is dependent on our quick recognition of patterns, that it accelerates our life to be able to experience things if we don't have to stop and evaluate, if I don't walk into a room and become instantly overwhelmed by the materials of the chairs and the pattern on the walls and the workers who went into building this framework and the possible blueprints that these papers were printed on to make this room, if I can step away from all of that, recognize the pattern, I'm standing in a room, there's a number of chairs, there's something over there that's interesting to me, boom, that's relying on your perception and patterns. But what you want to do instead is disrupt them. If you're trying to be creative, you want to look at the embedded and underlying patterns in your life that have molded your thinking. So you're trying to think up a new um, you know, style, a new sort of like fashion or a new um, uh, piece of music, a new story. You want to stop and say, what is it that is so inherent that it's making it hard to come up with something new. Kurt Vonnegut did this with novels um, back in the 60s. Kurt Vonnegut did a great job. Most of his books disrupt the normal pattern of storytelling. He starts at the end. He tells you right there at the beginning of the book how this story is going to end. He explains that um, how the character will die, what situation they're going to find themselves in, down to intricate details, and then starts the story and shows us how we get there. This is like, um, instead of worrying about your plot being spoiled, he says, now listen, we have a great surprise ending here. This is what it is. Just watch how this gets set up. It's a totally different type of pattern to storytelling. And it can be um, uh, phenomenal. It can be uh, rich with novelty in your mind when you encounter this type of storytelling for the first time. Um, uh, M. Night Shyamalan does this in movie making. Watch Sixth Sense, and of course, in this case, we have a surprise ending, but the way that the film is crafted 
is relying on your brain creating patterns around what the characters are doing and their normal sorts of interactions, and then unwrapping those patterns at the end to show the flaw in your thinking. The Prestige, if you've seen that movie, really does that well too. So lateral thinking wants to invite you to sort of like make a stepping stone from one track to another. This is an escape method of thinking. That you're standing in one track and you want to try to move it somewhere else. You want to find out what that stepping stone is going to be. And that's your intentionality. So uh, one thing that Ed DeBono came up with is this idea called a provocative operation or PO. That when a group of thinkers are sitting around and trying to come up with something new, whatever that might be, a, a product, a service, a um, uh, design, um, that they allow themselves to think very openly in illogical ways. And that this will disrupt the, the thing with, with this provocative operation, or PO. And the way they do this is you start your conversation with the word PO, and this tells everybody to put their guard down. Don't jump on the flaw here. So for example, somebody might say, PO cars have square wheels. Now, everybody sitting here goes, okay, square wheels, what is this going to be used for? Instead of instantly saying, nope, cars don't have square wheels, that's a dumb idea, shut up, Bill. Instead, they sit there and, and, and contemplate, how can one utilize a square wheel? And it turns out there's lots of ways. You could pattern a road with arches so that only square-wheeled cars could, could drive on it. And what that does is um, makes it where you uh, can have only authorized cars going down this road rather than normal everyday cars. Um, or uh, you could have a fifth wheel on a car that comes down and it's square and it makes it where you can park on a really steep incline without worrying about your parking brake. Um, th these maybe seem like reasonable uh, instant solutions because I'm not undergoing this right now. I'm just giving examples. But this escape method of thinking where you introduce this Poe object, this Poe notion, is um, something that is uh, very powerful, especially in a group of thinkers, to invite somebody to let their guard down, and let the creative process go without jumping on that plot hole right away. Um, the random stimulation method is another wonderful method of, of uh, thinking. And this is where you get to an impasse. You get stuck on something. And you try to think of some other way to frame something. Let's say that you're working for a marketing team and you're trying to market um, a detergent because that's what marketing teams are always having to market. And they're, they're stuck on how to in, make something new out of this, how to say something new about soap after all these years of getting stuff cleaner. So what they do is this random stimulation method is uh, look up a random word roll a dice or uh, hit a random number generator, come up with a random word uh, page in a dictionary, look at the fifth word down, whatever it is, and whatever this word is, you then want to come up with 50 or 100 ways that it relates to the product you're talking about. How does this random word um, relate to your soap? So you come up with the word nightingale. Now you have to come up with 50 ways that this soap can relate to the word nightingale. I, I picked a noun, which seems kind of weird. Um, but this type of thinking forces you to sidestep your normal flow of thoughts. 
because your normal flow of thoughts is built upon the patterns and perceptions of everyone around you who has had an influence in what it is that you think. And your schooling method has given you this linear critical thinking. So this lateral thinking opens you up. It opens you up to new ideas and new operations of thought and new ways to use the engine of your brain. And lateral thinking allows you to excel and to be of value in something without having to be the absolute best. Now, maybe this isn't what we should be aiming for. Maybe we should be making you the best. Well, there's billions of other people out there. How are you going to find your uniqueness? How are you going to do that? It's from your perspective. It's from you disrupting the normal way things are done. Now, new ideas, fresh ideas, novel ideas are not always valued. They don't always hit the way you want them to hit. Composers, writers, artists, tons of them have died paupers to have their work discovered later as something to be upheld as triumphant and wonderful. But that's not your problem. Your problem is that you're facing a world where there are so many people doing so many things, mostly in the same normal way. And to find your uniqueness and your um, special spot in whatever this is, you have to come up with your point of view. And that has to be different than our normal default setting. So hopefully, from from building from the beginning of this whole series of um, looking at the ways that we're taught, looking at the ways we absorb the culture of ideas around us, the way that our uh, natural settings are um, meticulously uh, in line with everything that's sort of come before us, recognizing your thinking, recognizing your process, um, being metacognitively aware that you're then able to step through this door into lateral thinking to really leverage your abilities in a new way.